0: Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show, the podcast edition. Joining me now, a special guest, former ambassador, former director of national intelligence, Richard Grinnell, uh, joins us to talk about Ukraine, Russia, Iran, pretty much whatever is on his mind. Rick, thanks for coming to the show today.
1: Thanks for having me, Ed.
0: So, I mean, obviously, the big issue right now is is Ukraine. I mean, this is the crisis crisis. that's, it's at hand. Now, you were ambassador to Germany at the same time as you were acting DNI, I should, I should mention. You were ambassador there for several years. And so you have a pretty upfront, close look at um, how Germany sees this issue with Ukraine and, of course, the conflicting interests that they might have with the United States, with France, for instance, and and some of the other members of the EU. Uh, First off, what's your assessment of what's going on right now and how does, what role is Germany going to play in whatever happens here?
1: Well, um, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, You know, the whole thing is such a mess. I mean, I think the answer to your question about Germany is they're not playing a very constructive role. Um, You know, I was just texting with uh, some Germans who I know and they were complaining about the fact that Germany this current government of Olaf Scholz, who was the finance minister when I was there, and I know him. He um, is now in charge. He is uh, a socialist. He's like uh, what I, I like to say. He's the best socialist that we could find. <laughs> um, I like him very much. He's a good guy and, and a straight shooter. Um, what, what I would say, though, is that the Germans um, have really undercut the EU. And, and there's no other way to say that. They have um, really been a terrible EU member. The rest of the European Union, um, you look at the European Parliament votes, they did not want the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to go forward. And we should remember and constantly message to people that the American position, no matter what the country, including our own, is that energy should come from a diverse set of of supply so that you don't get locked into one country owning you or being able to leverage the energy against you. And what's happened in Germany is the American position is that Nord Stream 1 is part of that diversified energy source. They can uh, include some Russian gas just like we do. and, And as long as it's not too much, then you can balance it out and never be um, you know, pushed or leveraged by uh, Putin. But Nord Stream 2 goes too far. And we've been very clear for a very long time. And it's been a bipartisan clearness. Right. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans have said, Nord Stream 2 goes too far for Germany. What are you doing? And remember that after the Fukushima disaster, the Germans really uh, made a quick emotional terrible decision and they started to get rid of all nuclear energy and and decided that because of fukushima this was like an energy disaster i think the lessons of fukushima we could talk uh, a whole show on it's probably don't build um you know on an ocean right <laughs> um and and don't build in a gully you know there, there's a whole bunch of other lessons um nuclear energy remains the cleanest form and something that I think we should do more of. We certainly should do more in the United States. Germany uh, rushing to get rid of nuclear energy was a big mistake. France is not in that position. Um, they, they did not make that same mistake. And so what, what I would say now is, is that, that Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline is not online. And if we wanted to solve this problem, we should just sanction, sanction the Nord Stream 2 pipeline right now. We don't have to send troops Uh, An America first policy of bringing our troops home and not starting wars means that you let the State Department do its job and have diplomacy with muscle, which is the Nord Stream 2 sanctions, except when Biden came in, the Biden administration and Democrats and the German government all came together to lobby against sanctions and to drop the sanctions. This is a problem that's of the Democrats, The Biden administration and the German government's making. There's no question about that. I'll finish with this, Ed. We didn't see the Russians move on Ukraine from 2016 to 2020. Why? Because Donald Trump is unpredictable. And I heard it all the time in Europe. I just don't know what your president is going to do. And I would always smile and say, that's the whole point of foreign policy.
0: Well, right. I mean, this is sort of the Nixon madman theory, right? Is that you want to keep your enemies guessing. There's more to it than that, though, too. I mean, between 2016, really 2017 and 2021, there was a a transformational change in energy markets. America became a net exporter of can Amazing. You
1: can't emphasize that enough. That's transformational.
0: And that actually undercut. Well, I don't want to say undercut. It lowered um, energy prices around the globe, and it that impacts petrostates like Russia and Iran particularly, and it leaves them with fewer options for aggression. And so, when you take a look at this, you, you mentioned the fact that they didn't. They moved on Ukraine in 2014, and then sort of solidified their position through 2015 and 2016. They could have kept going, but one has to one has to actually look at the economic the fin- the fiscal issue here to understand why uh, Russia kind of consolidated their position rather than move forward there's a, a pretty good sense here that they probably didn't have the resources to do it and and right now you're hearing this even around the edges Rick about the fact that, uh, Russia might not really have the economic resources to to do a complete invasion of um, of of Ukraine, even with energy prices where they're at right now, and they're going to go higher um, yeah. in, in this kind of a crisis.
1: There's no question that that the economy is hurting in Russia, and that they need uh, new revenue sources, which is why they maximized and prioritized Nord Stream two. They're going to get a lot of German money. They're going to get a lot of energy money. And uh, you know, fr- from my perspective, is that <clears throat> Joe Biden and the Washington types are trapped into this idea that every time there's a crisis, we're supposed to send uh, U.S. troops, men and women on the ground, and that's what we're rushing to. We, I don't know where we went wrong, but we've shoved the State Department off. They don't get to do any, uh, you know, serious diplomacy. And every time we have an ambassador with muscle they kind of mock that person and say, oh, he's undiplomatic. And it's almost like you're supposed to be this weak person if you work at the State Department. My view is that if you want to avoid war, then you better have a very strong State Department with diplomats who really know how to negotiate creatively and avoid war because if we fail at the State Department, if we fail in our conversations across the table, then what we do is we send that file of a crisis over to the Pentagon and they don't negotiate.
0: Rick, how much of this is just the US foreign policy sort of going awry on Ukraine, not during just the Biden administration, but really going back to uh, the beginning of the post-Soviet period with the with the um, uh, the, the Budapest, um, uh, agreement in '94, the Bucharest Declaration in 2008, especially which came Minsk. three three months before. The, I'm sorry. Go
1: ahead. Minsk One and Minsk Two. Right. Right. I mean, look, I, you're hitting on something, Ed, that has really frustrated me for a long time. And let me just tell you a tangential story, which brings this to light. When um <clears throat> when when the European media kept messaging all the time, oh, Grinnell is is you know Donald Trump's man in Europe. Um, They they thought that that was uh, a negative on me and they thought that they were taking an attack on me. But what it did is it just signaled to so many people, you should probably go through the embassy in Berlin to get to the White House if you've got a crisis or an issue. That happened over and over. I mean, I'm gonna write a book someday and give all sorts of little tips of all these countries coming to Berlin to get their, their voices heard. But one um, crisis, the Serbia-Kosovo crisis, um, really both leaders came to me in Berlin and said, you know, no one's paying attention to us. Can we get a little attention? And I uh, talked to to the White House and they said, yeah, yeah, you know, explore this. Eventually I was appointed as the the presidential envoy for Kosovo-Serbia negotiations. And we launched these negotiations to do uh, diplomatic, um, economic, uh agreements and we successfully did four but my point in telling you the story is that when i was appointed the entirety and when i tell you the entirety of washington dc think tanks ngos uh and all those people who write white papers for 20 years they have taken the balkans issue and and literally controlled it with their intellectual Uh, uh, you know, white paper and and strategies. And they have failed for 20 years, but they strangled everybody in my orbit to say, don't work with Grinnell. Um, He's not coming to the NGO community. They, you know, all of them invited me to come speak and talk about what was happening. And I just thought it was useless because you've tried to uh, work on an issue for 20 years and you failed. Maybe we should try something new. So I came in and didn't pay attention to them, didn't pay attention to their politics and instead went for the economic uh, negotiations and boom, both sides were excited. We we met and we we had an agreement. My point in telling you this is, if you listen to the Washington DC establishment and foreign policy world, they just wanna control uh, the debate, the issues and they cannot think outside the box. They're trapped into this thing where they They talk about the crisis they get money and and jobs and they become more powerful in their little ngos so you need outsiders to think creatively the state department unfortunately is filled with diplomats who are beholden to that ngo uh, foreign policy crowd in dc
0: yeah you know and i I think the other thing too is i I don't i'm I'm not here to apologize for vladimir putin who i think is a a malevolent actor on the world stage but I think that there has been a series of uh, sort of this Francis Fukuyama uh, uh, fantasy thinking that you know history ended in 1990 with the fall of the Berlin Wall and that Russia was just going to become a a free market uh, paradise that would align with the West and all of these things would just simply disappear, ignoring the the reality of hundreds of years of. Of Russian culture and Russian Russian foreign uh, engagement, and I, I, I am certainly of the mind that nations should be able to have self determination in who they ally with and 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 you know what their alignment is. But it's foolish to have something like the Bucharest Declaration Declaration in two thousand eight, which just simply unilaterally declared that ukraine and georgia were going to become nato states without thinking that there was going to be some response from at that point in 2008 a, a pretty clearly you know autocratic uh vladimir putin
1: look uh, we could do a whole show on what you just asked it's very smart analysis and also i think uh a frustrating point in washington yes. when you look at these issues but um, look, no one has been tougher on, on Putin or Russia than me. I mean, you look at my right. tenure, even in Germany, and we were very strong standing against the Russians, pushing the Germans to do more. But I don't believe that diplomats should be just poking Putin in the eye every every turn. Yeah. Um, and I also think, um, let me just say this, it's going to be controversial, but I don't think that we should be talking about adding NATO members when the current members aren't paying their fair share, why are we going to extend this agreement to protect uh, other countries in this, um, th- you know, in this NATO alliance and a NATO agreement? Um, why are we going to extend that umbrella if the current members are undercutting NATO? Now, I will go to my grave arguing that what Donald Trump did. Uh, was try to strengthen NATO. He did not ignore the problems that NATO has seemed uh, to, to have because, <clears throat> excuse me, because it's just been a drift, right? So right. many presidents <clears throat> have ignored the problems of NATO people not paying their obligations, old way of thinking, um, not being able to uh, take on today's challenges. And when Trump came in and just said, you know, NATO is acting irrelevant and nobody's paying attention to it. um, He wanted people to pay their fair share so that we could strengthen NATO. And of course, what did the Europeans do? They attacked him as saying, you know, oh, don't get us off this status quo that we're on because we get to not pay our bills and America is paying for our security. I mean, you can't blame the Germans and I've been in those meetings where Donald Trump looked at Chancellor Merkel and said, I don't blame you actually. I don't blame you for taking advantage of the United States. Why wouldn't you want to have a budget surplus, not pay your NATO bill, have 50,000 American troops and never have to worry about an invasion from Russia or somebody else? Because we are protecting you. But then Trump would say, but you can't blame me for working for the American people and demanding that that stop. And that's what I loved about President Trump is that he was challenging the status quo when all of Washington and Brussels, Berlin and Paris, love the status quo.
0: Yeah. So let's turn our attention, we've got a few minutes left, and I don't want to keep you too long. I know you're a busy man, and I want to get back to what you're doing these days too, at at the end of this. But let's talk just at least briefly about what your assessment is of the Joe Biden uh, foreign policy as expressed through the State Department and Antony Blinken. I mean, what's your assessment of Blinken's performance? What's your assessment of of foreign policy at the moment we are you're already kind of clear about where you see it on ukraine just in generally though i mean where are
1: we headed yeah. well look we have to be honest when we when we take a step back and we say that the leadership the political leadership of the state department right now is a obama third term and there's no question about that it's the same players yeah. um, remember that anthony blinken was susan rice's deputy at the nsc And Avril Haynes, who is running um, the intelligence agency, she's the director of national intelligence, she also was Susan Rice's deputy. And so Susan Rice, who uh, couldn't get confirmed and and people think that she's a disaster, um, she couldn't get confirmed as secretary of state and so they couldn't go with her. And so she is now running domestic policy from inside the White House. Nobody believes she's actually running domestic policy. Everybody knows she's running Uh, international and foreign policy. And I think the rumors are true that Biden really wanted to pick her as the VP, but uh, Barack Obama said, no, you need somebody with legislative experience and somebody who's got a a better name like Kamala. And so what I would say is that we have uh, been trapped into this Obama third term. Remember um, the, the Russians grabbed Crimea and redid the borders of Europe under Obama, Uh, Brexit started under Obama. The European Union was really uh, smaller and less effective after eight years of Barack Obama and Joe Biden. There's no question about that. And I don't understand why the foreign policy establishment, especially in Brussels, doesn't see that Europe is less secure, weaker under the Democrats in Washington DC. That's just looking at the facts. So I don't like the way the State Department is right now. Um, I think it's been shoved aside. Anthony Blinken is so weak that um, even Joe Biden is kind of saying, ah, we can't go with any of his ideas. Uh, You just saw Macron uh, host the French and the Germans and the russians and the ukrainians are talking about a solution for ukraine not including the americans now we see uh the french going to russia then going to kiev um i I just think that it's obvious that the uh state department under anthony blinken and wendy sherman is incredibly weak remember now wendy sherman gave us a disastrous deal in north korea she got outsmarted by uh the north koreans then she gave us a disaster Uh, agreement, a disastrous agreement with Iran. Then she was brought in to do negotiations on Russia, failed there. I don't understand why we keep putting these weak diplomats um, at the State Department under Democrats. I will say that they like this idea of consensus with the Europeans, where we all just agree. And that has become the lowest common denominator of foreign policy. I saw it after eight years of my tenure inside the UN Security Council where 15 members uh, water down something and they all have to sign off and the, the agreement that you look at the, or the statement is so weak, it's it's not effective. And, and that's what they maximize. That's what they want at the State Department. Joe Biden wants to be loved and applauded by the Europeans. So the Europeans are watering down the US policy. I, I think that the opposite of America first is consensus with the Europeans or the UN and and, and it just means that we are not in the lead. I now believe that the Democrats want that for America. They want to see us as one of many, as just a partner with the rest of the world, not standing out and leading. They somehow are ashamed when America has to be alone or be the leader and step out first. They want, you know, they they keep talking about, oh, we're together. I mean, yesterday between uh, the new chancellor, Olaf Scholz and Joe Biden at the White House, it was just a kumbaya. We're gonna act together, we're gonna act together, we're gonna be together. That, it's such a lie. Uh, You know, no one is paying attention. And why didn't Joe Biden look at Olaf Scholz and say, Chancellor Merkel didn't pay her NATO bill, are you going to? Are you gonna pay the 2% obligation? You got 50,000 American troops there. You got a budget surplus. What's going on? I mean, that's diplomacy. That avoids war, but instead of confronting them with diplomatic language, we're sending US troops into Ukraine. And I'll finish with this, Ed, because it's really made made me angry. After the disastrous Afghanistan debacle- Right. uh, you know, Joe Biden was very proud to have left 10% behind. He said, we got 90% of the people out and he was really proud of that. The world saw that as a moment where they couldn't count on America and they were questioning that look, the Biden administration took the Houthis off the terrorist list. The Houthis are now bombing the UAE, uh, Abu Dhabi has been receiving missiles. Good thing they they have the ability to stop those. Otherwise we'd see all all out war. Uh, but this is the weakness that keeps coming down the pipe. And, and I'm very concerned in Ukraine that the reaction from Afghanistan, the disastrous pullout, meant that the Biden team and the Blinken State Department has once again used emotion over facts in Ukraine. We pulled out everyone from our embassy. We were the first ones. We're usually the last ones. Right. We, we vacated our embassy And the rest of the world said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to follow the United States. We don't think that a war is around the corner. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian government is saying stop with this war talk. It's typical of this emotional politicization of uh, foreign policy by the Biden team. And now the irony is is that the media and the Democrats keep saying that the Trump administration did that. they are totally doing that how else can you explain being the first to vacate in kiev our embassy when no one followed us i think that they were so afraid of what happened in afghanistan that they used emotion over intelligence and facts and just immediately vacated it's it's a terrible terrible conundrum yep absolutely
0: um now i know we're out of time i want to give you a moment if you've got any projects going on? You got anything interesting going on? Uh, uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days?
1: Well, thank you. Uh, You know, I've got a a whole bunch of uh, friends who are running for public office. (laughs) And so I'm trying to help them where I can. Um, You know, I I do buy political work for for my friends. I don't get paid. I always wanna say that, you know, I'm I'm helping uh, my friend Adam Laxalt in Nevada. Uh, I'm not getting paid on that campaign. I'm working hard to, to, you know, just help where I can. Uh, Jim Lehman in Arizona is another person that I believe. Jim Lehman is in a crowded primary in Arizona, but he's been able to get all of the national security and border immigration um, experts. He's got um, Chad Wolf, Mark Morgan, Tom Homan, um, Brandon Judd. Um, all of those, and myself and Matt Whitaker, have all endorsed Jim Lehman, and I think that's one of the untold stories is that in Arizona, immigration is a very big deal, and all of the people that are the experts on immigration, border security, national security, uh, public security, have endorsed jim layman in that center race
0: all right well we're going to keep an eye on jim Lehman. <clears throat> excuse me and we're going to keep an eye on uh, ambassador uh, rick grinnell rick thank you so much for being with us today great talking to you again
1: let's do it again soon ed thank you
0: welcome back to the ed morrissey show podcast edition joining me now is one of my good pals one of my good friends both from relevant radio and this uh show peter Grandich from PeterGrandich.com. Wrote the uh, book Confessions of a Former Wall Street Whiz Kid and is still giving um, uh, testimony to the uh, Christian way of doing business at petergrandish.com. And he's here with us right now, of course. Peter, great talking to you again.
2: Great to be with you as always, Ed. Very much appreciate
0: it. You know, um, I, I, we'll start off with the jobs report. Now, we're, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. So this is just a few hours after this jobs report dropped. You know, I've been reading jobs reports for well over a decade on a consistent basis, right? And, I, you know, doing an analysis on this. And I know that every year the Bureau of Labor Statistics does these sort of methodology adjustments because, you know, these are surveys. You have to you – know, these surveys have to be in, in relation to the population so you can do the correct projections. I don't think I've ever seen anything like the <laughs> – adjustments that took place in 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 this jobs reports i mean the numbers are just wildly uh wildly changing in this um in this adjustment you've got something like in a month um 1.3 million people added or 1.4 million people added to the um uh, uh uh workforce in a single month um you know from december to january you had 467,000 jobs added that was on the establishment survey, which is a little bit more stable, but I mean, this is crazy. You know, the, 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 you see all this, all these pluses and yet the uh, participation rates, the two different participation rates didn't budge. Something's really odd with this thing. It doesn't add up internally. Well, you know,
2: for starters, people got excited when they said, Oh, look, they, The last two months were bumped up, like you said, a million something, but what they didn't cover in the media, if you go back to earlier in 2021, they did away with 600,000 jobs that they had reported and and brought that down. I think more important, first of all, let me just say this, and I'm emphatic in this. I will trust ADP, who doesn't really have an ax to grind one way or another, other than getting what they believe is the count correct, versus government workers, no matter what party's in charge. I'm not saying it's just, I think it's been going on for years. It's been used. If you can imagine some of the whispers going into this was there could be as much as a million jobs lost because of Omicron. In fact, the press secretary, Biden's press secretary was working for days in her conferences, trying to prepare people for a soft you know, employment number, you know, about how much Omicron was going to impact it. And then this came out. And uh, I I just think ADP, who had shown a significant loss in jobs, uh, was more reliable. But as you said, there were other things that you can count on more that just don't add up. And then what little coverage there's been so far is the big bump up in wage costs. Yeah, I think I think that should be the headline story, because not only do we know that we have a uh, supply shortage, a a not transitory. This is something that isn't going to be fixed by having a few meetings and getting a few more boats into into port and so forth. This is a real serious problem. Everybody I know throughout different industries or different types of businesses are not only talking about labor problems, but abilities to get parts and services and that, and then one impacts another and it goes down the line. And on top of that, we now have wage costs going up and we're seeing, we saw Clorax and others talk about uh, the cost uh, and they're going to have to pass it on and they're going to raise prices. And the other tricky thing that's going on is they're actually shrinking the boxes at there. You know, it, They actually made in some, some people name nameless made the box bigger, but the package actually inside is actually one or two ounces shorter and all. So these are, these are all the things that uh, make us be very suspicious. And I suspect in the next couple of months, if both you and I are still above ground, we'll be talking about how they readjusted this number a few months down the road.
0: Well, I, I expect it next month, actually, and that's the reason why I say, you know, let's take a look and see what happens after all. You know, now that they they've made these adjustments, let's see what happens next month because I suspect that there's going to be a a big adjustment back. I mean, it's not just it's not just for January either. I mean, they upwardly revised um, uh, December and and uh, November, which is you know normal. They'll usually up they usually do revisions to the previous two months, but these are upward revisions. That added something like seven hundred thousand jobs. I mean, these are massive re- revisions based on this new methodology that that they're adopting. So yeah, I mean, this is it's it's odd. Now ADP, I I think I'm a little less sanguine about ADP because I've tracked ADP for several years too, as you as you have as well. And ADP is usually aspirationally a <laughs> leading indicator of what the BLS is going to do, but rarely is it it. It usually gets the trends right. And this is, I think, your point, is that the trend here from ADP was 301,000 to the negative. Um, now, I don't know that that was a great guess, but I certainly expected today's number to be under zero um, as a result. Um, I don't think I've ever seen them miss in that far in, and, and while getting the direction entirely wrong. I mean, we're talking about a miss of close to 800,000 here. I think this is, I've been at this, I'm going to be going in my 39th year. And of
2: course I don't remember every month, but if there was a bigger percentage miss, I don't remember it. It might've been, but I would say this would have to be in the top three in the last four decades. And, uh, what was real interesting. And of course we knew Biden would come out and say something, you know, prepared as usual, uh, that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good thing. And then of course, wouldn't take any questions because I can imagine the questions that would have came about the, the figuring of this, and it, it he has trouble understanding the simplest thing now to try to explain the new methodology or whatever and how these numbers came about would have been a lost cause. So I didn't expect that. I clearly knew he wasn't going to answer any questions right. on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. Um, getting back to the wage thing, though, because I think you're right, this is, I think, the bigger news. because. Again, I don't know that you can rely on any of these numbers. I'm not sure how good ADP's numbers are. I'm I'm very sure that this Bureau of Labor Statistics report really doesn't add up. I, I'm I'm just gonna say let's take let's do a mulligan, let's not make any assumptions off this and see what happens in February. But the wage gain issue is I think uh, separate from that. And you know, you, you saw wages go up, I think it was like 23 cents an hour. The annualized increase now is 5.7% you've got inflation now up to 7% and this looks to me like the beginning and it has for a month or two now the beginning of a wage price spiral that where this is sort of like what they call chasing the dragon with addicts right is that you know businesses are going to start increasing wages in order to compensate for inflation but as you add labor costs from all these wage increases, it forces prices up. And this is the wage price spiral that we saw in the mid to late 1970s. Um, do you see the same the same risk and, and even better yet, Peter, because you have your eye on the markets at all times. Are corporations starting to price price this risk in as well? Uh, the
2: answer is yes and yes. And especially the last part, corporations of uh, who were struggling to pass on costs for several years. Have jumped all over this. I mean, everybody, both in the public sector that you can see, but even the private people that I talk to in businesses around the country, not just in you know my you know East and Seaboard type of, have all talked about how costs have gone up. Uh, talk to anybody who has restaurants, what what, what food costs, and, and and how they have to pass that on in the menu. Uh, we're seeing tremendous supply shortage let, let, let's make no mistake about it we were just as we were told a year ago inflation itself was transitory and not to worry about it it wasn't too many months ago we were told that the supply issue was just because of the lockdown with everybody coming back now and all it'll all be great yet more and more people are seeing uh stores empty shelves or products and services they're so used to getting being told it will be many months before they get it I've talked to several people who have been building and can't complete buildings because there's certain parts that they just can't get that normally they would get in days or weeks and now taking a month of being told possibly a year or longer. So I think I think that is going to be the bigger story as this evolves. But one thing it does do, the, the, the negative on this, if you want to look at it as a negative, is the Fed can't play the game of, making the assumption we are that yeah it's not real and it's going to be lower they've already been put in the corner there's no question they're going to raise rates uh, because they they're already viewed behind the eight ball now the big surprise in europe how europe came out of left field and suddenly jacked up rates when many people thought they weren't going to do that uh once all that kicks in it just kind of feeds on itself and I told you many months ago, both on your show and perhaps when you were filling in the radio, I know I've shared with Drew and others, that I said last year the bigger negative is gonna be the bond market. Because you see, when the stock market can go down, Ed, but you could have a company or an industry that does well and it could still go up. But trust me, when interest rates go up, bonds go down, end of the story. There's no exception to it. And you remember we had a conversation when I talked to you and we shared that for the first time ever, junk bond yields went below the consumer price index. And that was before it rose. Right. So those purchases back then, people were already looking at a double digit loss on a fixed income. You see, when I was in the financial advisory game and the people that are still doing it, when you got tired or concerned about the stock market, you moved to the fixed income market because you got a return. And the return was always normally just ahead of inflation so the people didn't get hurt. Now what's gonna happen? The Fed says it's gonna step out of the bond market and it's not gonna make it purchases. Well, they've been 50, 60, sometimes 70% of the purchases. Inflation somewhere is between five and 10%. Anybody tells you anything different, it's just, just not right, it's just across the board. Right. Well, if something is 2%, which government bonds basically are now, and inflation's five and 10%, and you take the Fed out of buying that 2% paper, I don't know who's going to pay that paper. Now they pay it if it goes to five or six. So I still think as, as, as concerned as one should be about the stock market. And I think we've seen the bubble burst, you know, you and I and Sugar others have talked about it. The world's biggest financial bubble of all time. I think the air is coming out. It's clear. We're watching some of the most favorite stocks that just a year ago, if you listen to certain networks and all, that sound like you just couldn't miss. And now they're down 30, 50, 70% from their highs but the bond market to have double digit losses. And here's the most people that suffer from that are the least that can afford it. They tend to be the elderly, the retired, the conservative and Ed, the second phase is coming that you. And I talked about, I think the last time you and I spoke, and that is these people also went into dividend paying stocks in order to keep to make up for where they couldn't get yield elsewhere. And I've told you the story that here in this 55 and over community, people say to me, Pete, I don't care if my stock's going down 30% Besides, I'm leaving it for my kids. Just don't cut the dividend because that's how I live off of That's the next unfortunate negative that's coming. As the economy does slow, as things get tougher, as rates rise, we're going to see some significant dividend cuts. The dividend cut in AT&T was no surprise. And I suspect we're going to see that in other places. And that's where the real... Trouble is going to hit the combination of the bond market with interest rates going up and inability to keep paying dividends at the levels that they paid it at are really going to set us up
0: for I think we'll be talking more and more about that as we get through this year. Well, I think we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. And one of the, one of the things that we're going to talk about, and I think you and I discussed this on relevant radio, not, not, not on the podcast here. Uh, and I know I've talked about it with another friend of mine, King Banyan, who's the uh, professor of economics at uh, St. Cloud State University, is the flexibility that the Fed actually has or, or the limited flexibility it actually has. You know, in, um, you know when, when Paul Volcker came in and jacked up interest rates, you know, to 20 percent um, in order to ring out the wage price spiral, in order to uh, ring out the um, stagflation that was afflicting the economy in the late 1970s. First off, it took a while because nobody had done anything for a while with this. But the other thing is that the Fed's books were relatively light at the time and national debt wasn't anywhere near. <laughs> I mean, it was in a completely different minor league than where we're at right now. Um, so, you know, the Fed's going to raise interest rates. They're going to cut back on their their purchases, but they they don't really have the flexibility to simply get rid of all of the... Uh, you know, quantitative easing purchases that they've made over the last 10 or 12 years, Peter. They just, they, it, it would be impossible for them to to devolve that, right? Well, that
2: definitely would have a huge implication if they wanted to sell them. Now, they're talking about just letting them so-called run out that they don't make any purchases and as they mature, they don't reinvest that capital and so forth. And that would be enough, but they would really have to start selling that to really bring the balance sheet down. But you bring up a very good point. When Volcker did that, we were the world's largest creditor nation and our true deficit was under a trillion dollars. Right. Now it's 30. We went over 30 trillion the other day and we go back to this story and it's very simple math. We have 30 trillion in hard debt. It doesn't take into account what the government owes for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. There isn't any cash sitting somewhere where we draw from there and we pay those people. But we'll move that possibly up to $70 trillion of additional debt over here, like the government does, because they don't fund unfunded liabilities like you and I as a business owner would have to. But even at yet the $30 trillion, if interest rates just go to 5%, and you have to refinance at 5%, that means we would be paying one point five trillion dollars of interest expense. Yep. Ed, in our best year in two thousand and nineteen, the government took a little about three point two trillion in in tax revenue total. We would almost pay half of everything we could take in in taxes to interest. Yep. It's a non-starter. And then if you want to start talking about six, seven, or eight percent interest rate, you know, you're like so. So you're right. They don't have the maneuverability that Volker had. Uh, and we don't have the support that we had. I can't tell you, and this is your area of expertise, the political will among our so-called allies come back then to now is nil. Uh, we're certainly in a battle to still be the economic number one economic power. That wasn't the case back in 1980. Uh, we certainly had uh, less issues, uh, I think, here. I, we certainly are far more divided as a country now than we were in 1980. Uh, and so the other issue that I have, and I, and I hope it never comes to this, head, and that is when we had the last financial crisis, uh, which was really a crisis created by investment bankers for selling people mortgages that they could never afford in the first place and sold it short to them so they profit twice. Those same people are still around, by the way. The government at least was able to go in a room and they came up with this quantitative easing, which remember, if you remember when Frank, he sold it to us, it was just going to be one time. And most of the money was going to go to infrastructure, right? That's how things were going to turn around, which it never did. Okay. Then we got QE2 and three and possibly four as well. I don't think we had the political will anymore. Could you imagine the Democrats, Republicans suddenly Monday having to go in a room and try to work out some financial crisis? I don't. It's sad, but I, I can't see it possible.
0: I I don't see it either, unless it was on the order of a complete meltdown. At, at which point you might find some you might find some consensus to do some short term stuff, just like they did in 2008, right? I mean, the Bernanke thing was a short term uh, near consensus at the Fed to basically allow Congress or to give Congress the room to do some short term stuff. So it's short term, short term, short, short term, and because Congress wasn't going to commit to doing long term restructuring of the nation's finances, uh, or of the, um, you know, the the uh, unfunded uh, liabilities that are coming due in all of the different entitlement programs—Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid—you know, food programs—all of that has there's tremendous unfunded liabilities in all of these entitlement programs and um, and they won't even budget the the um, the other part of the federal budget they won't even um, I'm trying to think discretionary spend the discretionary spending part of the federal budget runs over revenues too right i mean it's there's no discipline at all and so there's a series of short term things that got them past the one crisis if you had a similar level crisis peter i think you'd find just enough consensus to do some of those um, kick the can down the road type of um things leaving all of the structural problems in place i'm not even sure that we ever had the the consensus to fix all those things back in the early 1980s or late 1970s again i think it took the fed to take action congress wasn't going to do it um and that was when congress was dominated by democrats
2: yeah I, i like i said there are a whole host of uh things to be concerned about economically, socially, and politically, and don't paint a great picture. Uh, I personally believe, and this is just, you know, I'm a man of 65, going to be 66 soon. Uh, I believe we've seen the best of bull markets. I don't believe there'll be ending close to what we've had, uh, whatever my natural life is is left, whether it's yep. one year, 10 or 20. That's how long I think. I, and, and what really sad is that is that our children and if one has grandchildren will pay even a bigger price because it's going to be much tougher for far longer for them than it will be for me in my latter stage of my natural life.
0: So with that in mind, and, you know, because we always bring you back to the markets, you're you're a market, a market guy. Um, and I, I know that we're going to talk about this in general terms because you don't do specific recommendations. um even when people call into the show on Relevant Radio, on Drew's show, you don't do specific recommendations because you're a very conscientious man, and you, if, if you're going to give advice, you need to know everything that there is to know about one of your clients before you can tailor any advice to this. But in general terms, you're looking at, if you're looking at the market now, where do you go, uh, to try to navigate the extremely rough waters that are going to be coming ahead here very soon?
2: Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a story I've, I've been singing for perhaps as long as I at least know you, Ed, if not longer, and that right. is Less Is More. That has been my philosophy. Uh, despite the tremendous blessings from the Lord in, in, in material things, uh, my wife and I have shrunk uh, a size on how we live and what we do, and we've dedicated over half of our work to, uh, to be given away, but I think people's life should be less is more. You know, I, I, I've stated that I talk, you know, I dealt with athletes and that was, you want to talk about an impossible task is to tell some young 25 year old kid that just signed a $20 million contract, not to buy the five or $10 million home and the $200,000 car and all of that. And the line I always used to get, yeah, but the guys I play with have that. And if I don't do that, but for the average person out there, uh, spend, spend less than you make. Now, that's hard, because there's this philosophy, and it's been here for decades, of keeping up with the Joneses, as we used to like to say it, and and to live the the lifestyle. But realistically, uh, the other problem that we're having now, and and this guy did it when uh, a few elections ago, when he talked about, there are more and more people in the wagon, and less and less people pulling the wagon. And eventually, those of us left pulling the wagon, which means the weight of paying the taxes because, you know, they want to do away with paying back student loans. All all, it, all the answers here are going to be raise taxes. There's, that's all the government really has at its disposal. Less service and raise taxes. Those are the two main things it can do. There's going to come a time when people pull in the wagon and go, listen, I'm tired of pulling. I want to get in the wagon, too. Uh, some that are extremely wealthy can escape it. But the, the middle class and the upper middle class, so to speak, are the people that are going to be hit. And those people are, are the ones now who are, you know, finding ways to, uh, to pre- protect as much as they can uh, from this. And that's why even you're seeing certain wealth, people of wealth moving out of certain states to other states. I mean, the difference of being in New York City and making a million dollars and living in some place in Florida could be six figures saved in taxes. That's a huge difference to make somebody say, you know what, maybe I'll put up with the heat for 10 or 11 months instead of just three or four. And all that's that's why there's a big demographic shift going on too, and it's not discussed, but if you look how people are moving, you moved recently, I'm not saying that's the reason you moved, but there's probably more movement of people, especially people of of older age and some means to certain areas for reasons, economically, socially, and politically. And uh, it really changes the demographics to when we looked at you know 20 or 30 years ago. And I, I think those are things people have to take into consideration in regards where you think the stock market's going up or down and all this, all these other things now that come into play that our parents and, and our grandparents never had to worry about.
0: You know, I, I moved, for a couple of reasons. I mean, there actually several reasons. There's health reasons that we moved <clears throat> and some other things too. But, but among them, I got to say, Peter was, was, uh, your advice, you know, get, you know, get rid of as, as much debt as you can, get yourself into cash positions. Um, get ready to, um, uh, get ready to write out some of this stuff in from the strongest position possible. And of course I'm, just like everybody else, I'm getting older. Like my father likes to say, there ain't no one getting younger. (laughs) So, you know, I, you got to plan for that too. But I mean, the, the debt issue, I think, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit and I, I really began to see that wisdom and that was part of the reason uh, that was part of the reason for our move was to get to a position where we could lever the average, uh, the assets that we already had and get to that position where we no longer had to worry about, you know, ongoing structural debt in our finances and, and, were there so i feel much better about going forward with this but i i think that there may be a lot more people who are following that advice that you're that you've been giving out for a while peter
2: yeah and you know where it really came from ed when i decided almost 20 years ago that i'm not going to depend on some wall street written book but on the, the good book you know the holy bible the interesting thing is even if you want to look at the bible not as a religious uh book but as a book of just that a lot of people could, have claimed success over as, as most people run out and buy a book because somebody just said, Hey, you should listen to this person. The author or authors of it uh, don't have one positive thing to say about that. In fact, it's probably one of the biggest discussions. You know, people don't realize it. I know we may run out of time, but I think this is important. Yep. Matters of finance are talked about more than heaven and hell and praying. So God or whoever you want to say was the author or authors of that book, really must have felt it was gonna play an important part. And one of the things it really speaks hard against when it comes to matters of finance is debt. It also talks about the responsibility you have that if you've taken it on to pay it back uh, as well. But so that was what led me. And then when I looked at all the ill things that I saw people doing by getting leveraged, uh, it, it made me wanna come debt-free and always urge people to be debt-free. And there is, and I bet you, you'll say this in all honesty, there's a sense of peace and restfulness that you have that if you can remember the times when you were more leverage, even though you might've been doing well at the moment, but if something went wrong, the whole thing could go out of whack.
0: That peace now that I hear from people, they tell me is worth everything. Yep. No, I completely agree with that. At least in that, at least in that area of my life, Peter, I have some peace, and uh, yeah, it's the peace of the Lord. I I, I firmly believe that, and I, I really appreciate all of the conversations that we've had that led me to sort of that enlightenment, and it really is something that I don't think I would have thought too much about if it hadn't been for our friendship, so God bless you, and thank you very much for that. I appreciate it.
2: Well, again, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, this course changed in my life, and what I wrote about, because, you know, I was once very much into money as my God, you know, that whole story and all. And, and your story, I hear over and over again from people now that have that have heard. And then what, of course, I also hear from people is, boy, I wish I had listened to you. I didn't. And now here's the problem I have. And by then it's too
0: late. It's a, you know, yeah. it's a, they have to go through a very tough period of time. Indeed. Well, that's about, uh, we're, we're just about out of time here, Peter, but I want you to tell people where they can find you and also about your book and how they can read your book because that's also a great story. Well, uh, confessions of a former wall street whiz kid is on my website,
2: petergranich.com. You can read for free. It's also at Amazon. If you want to order the book, uh, basically I'm down to posting on my blog at petergranich.com and I do YouTube videos from time to time. And I do select interviews with gentlemen like yourself and that's pretty what's left of my life. And, uh, But it is still a a calling, and I think now more than ever, I tell people, is uh, the book that you need to read is not even Peter Grandich's book or some guy on Wall Street or TV, but the good book that the Lord left us. I believe it's a manual to life, and it certainly is a manual when it comes
0: to matters of finance. Peter dot com. go there. Listen to him on the Drew Mariani Show on RelevantRadio.com as well. You can... Listen to it on the air or off the app. It's great either way, and of course PeterGranich.com. He's got all the different YouTubes of his uh, of his uh, thoughts and advice. So be sure to check that out. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining us as always on Tuesday podcasts is the Prince of Twitter, the Regent of Red State, Andrew Malcolm at ah Malcolm on Twitter. Uh, the man with the man with a thousand nicknames. <laughs> After you know, after thirteen years on my show, he's got a thousand nicknames. Andrew, great having you back on.
3: <laughs> it's good to be back on. You know, I my life would be so screwed up if if it wasn't Tuesday with it. I mean, yeah. I just uh, the whole week is built around that. Oh, same so, here. Yeah. <laughs> so when when you uh, when you're traveling or something, then um, it's just just an empty period in my life. It. Uh, well I'm
0: I'm sorry to hear that but the, the good news is I'm not gonna be trapped <laughs> wow this took a somber turn real, real fast out <laughs> right out of the gate <laughs> all right Andrew speaking of somber nothing somber about your 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 uh what are your columns this week uh we're gonna get to both columns first though I want to talk about what happened at CNN last week. Um, we're kind of as of Monday afternoon here sort of in stasis. Uh, from uh, the developments that, you know, on Friday probably is, uh, is the latest news on this. But CNN, uh, Jeff Zucker got the boot. We're still not clear as to exactly what Chris Cuomo was going to say about Jeff Zucker, but whatever it was, was bad enough that um, Warner Media kicked them out. Alison Gallus, though, the woman that he was having an affair with and whom he promoted while having a sexual affair, apparently that stretches back a couple of decades is still at CNN, despite basically lying about the nature of the relationship in her public statement saying, oh, that changed during COVID. And then you had a number of people who went public and said, no, it didn't. This <laughs> has been going yeah. on for years and years and years. I, You know, I, you have to look at this and ask, you know, how does CNN hang on to Gullist? How do, they, how do they defend their credibility after everything that we've learned over the last few days that's been going on over at CNN?
3: It is kind of a sad saga in, in recent years, I must say, uh, after, oh, I forgot his name. Oh, Peter Arnett and, and yep. all the crowd in the early years <clears throat> over in the war areas.
0: Well, Bernard Shaw, uh, too, as an anchor. I yeah, mean, these guys were right. about hard you news. Know, he, was
3: the, he was the newsman on WIND in Chicago when I was in, uh, when I was in college there. And uh, he did, you know, the hourly news on the radio. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of sad and uh, the market has a way of sorting these things out and it, it appears given their ratings that it is and people have gone somewhere else, although there are always going to be people who, who stick with them. Um, in, in fairness, um, the woman. Um, you know, if the real reason for Zucker to go was that he didn't disclose the relationship early on, if that's the real reason, then she didn't have to. So uh, she's she didn't commit the crime that, that Zucker did. So
0: yeah, you know, and, and, and I've mentioned this, right? I've mentioned that the fact that usually the junior partner in, in these types of things is is usually treated differently i mean usually and this is true in all different kinds of organizations because to some extent there's a question as to whether or not they are themselves victims of manipulation uh you know the power differential and all that and
3: um although the fact that she jumped to cnn to follow him eliminates the idea of coercion. Once he left NBC, she was free, but she chose to follow. You know,
0: it's interesting too. Yeah, you're you're correct about that. And, you know, you had Katie Couric who was saying that there was something going on between them at NBC. There's been other sources now that are saying the same thing. So this is stretching back, you know, at least more you know, at least a decade or more. And because this was in 2008-2009 at NBC and at in 2013 you had Roland Martin and uh, Soledad O'Brien, who both left CNN during 2013, who came out immediately afterward and said Alison Golis' explanation is false. We all knew that there was something going on between them. And I, I mean, I think that you're you're correct to a certain extent. And this is more about human resources than it is about media. Yeah. But this does actually relate to media credibility because here you have a CNN executive who went out of her way to issue a statement that appears to be blatantly false. And I mean, that's gotta be a
3: problem, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. But you know, these institutions, the Catholic Church is one of them and modern media is another, are run by humans. And we all have, well, not me and not you, but we all have failing human (laughs) failings. <laughs> oh, I've got them in I've got them in spades, Andrew. No never doubt that. <laughs> all right, well then it's just me that's Just perfect. you. Yeah. Um it it's, um, it wouldn't be so bad if they weren't hypocritical. Right. You know, I mean they'd be all over a politician. I remember they were all over Elliot Spitzer. Boy, was that a fun story, huh? Um Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what was a client number nine. Um, they, they were all over him and they're here at the same time, they're doing the same thing, except maybe money wasn't exchanged. Um, it's just kind of tawdry and not, but you're right. The important part of it <clears throat> is not "Oh, we got you, Jeff Sucker, but the important part is that there's another media institution which whose credibility has just been shattered. And well, right. We, I mean we, we need these institutions. You know, I mean I've I said a lot of you and I have both and Bernard Goldberg and and others have said a lot of bad things about them because we want them to be better. Uh, but we really really need them uh and we need them to be strong and uh financially viable uh to do what their proper role should be they're not doing it now but and i don't know if they can earn that credibility back it's a very serious situation um and i don't know how it's going to be fixed honestly well i mean i think it has to
0: be fixed by having other media outlets treated honestly and this was the associated business associated Press's business section today addressing this and this is the lead paragraph for this story for all the potential peril of a workplace romance the most common source of trouble experts say is allowing it to remain a secret i mean yes part of this is the workplace romance angle on this but if you're a media outlet looking at what what happened with jeff sucker alison gallist andrew cuomo and chris cuomo the, the yeah. secret workplace romance is really a secondary <laughs> or tertiary issue you had Zucker and Gullis <laughs> yeah. turning CNN into Andrew Cuomo's propaganda channel to me yeah. I mean if I'm if I'm another media outlet looking at this I'm not really looking at hearts and flowers here I'm looking I'm looking at how you corrupted an entire news organization uh you know at least in part through this personal you know sexual relationship connection
3: yeah. Yeah, that's right. I've I've been in a couple of news organizations and they didn't have these kind of blatant things that I knew of. Um, But they did have human foibles in which there were sacred cows that you couldn't say anything bad about. Um, And there were certain people who were guaranteed to get a story out of doing nothing compared to um, other people who had to earn their shot at getting into the newspaper uh, and you know i mean edit, editors who had favorite subjects and if you had a story on that you could propose it to them and you knew it would go well and editor other editors who had sensitivities that would shoot it down not on its merits but because of their own personal proclivities that that went on all the time to my knowledge and that's before the media had their big credibility crisis i was in uh a newspapers um major metropolitan dailies before i think they they had all these modern troubles there were there were hypocrisies then but not not the sort of ones that get caught now because we have the internet
0: Right. Well, not the kind of conflicts of interest that we're seeing here, too. And, and you're right, not as much accountability. I mean, until Bernie Goldberg really stepped up, all the accountability was internal. And, you know, there was sort of like this omerta going on within these media outlets. You know, that thou shalt not speak ill of the uh, uh, of the editorial process sort of thing going on. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this Associated Press Business um, review of, of what happened at CNN and you know I'm not even sure that the name Andrew Cuomo even comes up in this um <laughs> in this piece. I mean that's how talk about omerta, right? I mean this is I mean this is almost a distraction strategy, right? This is it's almost like if you're complaining right, about right. this, you must you must be an enemy of love. <laughs> Are we that's enemies not, of love, Andrew? Is that what's going on here?
3: That's right, and Valentine's is coming, so that's that makes it timely. Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is this is a kind of a this is the this is a reason why people don't trust media, right? You've got this. You get CNN, whose executives are lying about this stuff, um, propagandizing for a favored Democratic politician, and the Associated Press, which is at least. To some extent, a competitor of CNN deciding that they're going to tackle the the deep uh, issue of Nookie in the workplace, rather than the actual corruption of the news. process. <laughs> Nookie in the
3: workplace. There's a clickable head. Ah, Nookie in the workplace. That's a, that's a good one. Well, yeah. and and, you know, uh, talk about human foibles, Associated Press is a co-op. So CNN is a member.
0: Oh, that's true. So they're not actually competitors. They're actually, you know, collaborators in in in, in the non-judgmental sense. So, you know, yeah.
3: <laughs> there's collaborators and there's collaborators, but, you know, yeah, um, yeah. yeah that, that's true. But they're part owners. I mean, the CNN is, quote, an owner of AP, like all the other news organizations that are members. And uh, so they're cutting some corners there. Yep. Yep.
0: Indeed. Well... We're going to continue to watch that situation to see what gets reported and what doesn't get reported. Allison Gullis is still working there. I'm surprised. Um, I I did get a hint in one report that she's working there, but it isn't going to last long because when Discovery comes in and takes over, they're probably going to give her the boot. Um, But for right now, they're just not going to rock the boat. They're going to leave her in place and maybe eliminate her position. That's something to watch in the eventual merger. But my guess is that they're going to try to downplay this right
3: yeah 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 they'll downplay it and wait for some of the winds to blow over uh and then they'll come in and new management teams see that that was i mean if you want to take this into politics that was uh trump's uh mistake when he took over was not canning comey immediately he could have canned comey as a new president yeah. Uh, immediately and there would have been no question about it or if there was any question it would have gone away very quickly but he waited endorsed them, and then canned him and then you've got a problem with the media that uh comey knew how to play yeah i think it was it would
0: probably still have been an issue even even if he had canned him right up front because before trump even took office the whole russia collusion thing was was um exploding in the news so um i suspect it wouldn't have made a ton of difference but the timing there made it worse for sure that's yeah yeah, there's no doubt about that um all right so speaking of um love in the news (laughs) 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 Uh, i gotta ask you about this column that you wrote over at redstate.com cialis when the moment is right while china violates human rights now i am as adamantly opposed to watching even a moment of this Olympics in on live television um, for as long as it lasts. And, um, and by the way, the ratings apparently are just terrible on this. I have a piece coming up a little later on Monday that shows that ratings for both the opening ceremonies and the first day of competition are off 43% from yeah. a similar period four years ago. Um, but your piece, I think, goes right to the heart of the whole business model here, right? Which is... What happens to the what happens to the endorsers? What happens to the advertisers on NBC's broadcasts, especially once they see these these ratings? It's gonna be no, I had a poll. Yeah,
3: oh, I had a had a poll, a morning consult. It, it does some really interesting stuff that you don't expect. It's not just the the horse race polls. They do a lot of stuff about, like this in which they ask people, uh, what should advertisers do? Given the human rights situation predicament in China, and the fact that they've paid a lot of money to reach a lot of people, and uh, a lot of people came and said they should not sponsor the Olympics. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was a majority, and and uh, others said, well, they should issue a statement. Which you know, neither one of them is going to happen. Um, because there's so much money involved uh and um uh, nbc said they sold uh most most of the ads but they have to i don't know what they call it give backs or whatever because the ratings are so low they'll have to give some of the money uh, some of the money back or give them um commercial time on other programs that are better rated right Uh, Um, But, you know, it's it's the the, uh, NBC paid, what was it, seven and a half billion dollars for the for the Olympic rights through uh, 2032. Uh, That's a lot of money. They also invest a lot of money um, to do this. You know, they've got like, I think, a thousand people over there, uh, technicians and people, most of them you never see. But uh, to make things run on time and guys who edit the videotape of the of the slalom run and and it's 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 a huge operation. Um, One of my sons was involved in that uh, on a newspaper point of view some years ago, but first of all you've got the International Olympic Committee, which is to my eyes a kind of shady operation. Um, And they're picking places like china that these are uh, these are uh, locales that bid uh to get the spot so it's not really well who can we help nbc with uh you know china had the olympics uh 2008 i think it was right yep and then and then korea had the last winter olympics and but when you get to asia you know that's a lot of that stuff is happening on another day uh and people want to see it live you know i mean abc wide world of sports and you're there and you can see things uh and it's very exciting there is a a delay of several seconds that nobody knows about but um the audiences were huge uh and assuming that not everyone went to the bathroom for the commercials uh you you (laughs) you have uh uh, a, a, a lucrative market for corporations um, to, like Coca-Cola and others, to uh, Procter and Gamble to sell to sell to. You know, you gather a crowd and and you want to make money off them. That, uh, doesn't none of that bothers me, but when you when the Olympic Committee, which is the one that made the mistake, picks China that has a communist country that is uh, an autocracy basically of the party um then you create a problem but it's not the olympics problem they still got the seven and a a half billion dollars from nbc uh and i'm not sure they care until 2032 about the ratings and the ratings will come back they'll come back so i don't know where the next ones are uh but well los
0: angeles is 2028 right i I believe los angeles is 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 2028 it's either 2024 or 2028 i know los angeles is it won one of those um so that'll solve a lot of the timing issues for the american audience but um
3: my favorite uh, story about the olympics uh and the committee was you know they met in copenhagen to pit the pick the summer games when obama was president michelle obama was there leading the american delegation to sell them on chicago i remember that yeah <laughs> and she called her husband and said, You know, if you come over here, I think we can pull this off. So he took Air Force One at $250,000 an hour and he flew to Copenhagen and he made an impassioned appeal after his wife did uh, for Chicago to be picked. And while the two of them were on the plane over the Atlantic coming back, the committee eliminated Chicago as <laughs> a possible place. Now, there, there were reasons because it all had to be spread all over. It wasn't just in one place. Right. But but uh, and Chicago, or, uh, Obama was so pissed, I understand. You know, when the Olympics, the next Olympics happened in Vancouver, he's, he refused to go, and he sent Biden. Um, uh, you know. I recall that too. Yes, yeah. he was. I mean, he was our, angry. Yeah. Our, our, our neighbor country, and you're going to snub him, but that I mean that's that's we get back to the human nature of these institutions that's Obama, too. Uh, and. Um, he, he's a he's a vindictive he can be a vindictive person, but that's what that's how you survive in Chicago politics. Uh, right the, yeah. uh, I had a, I had a friend who was a member of the City Council, he was a maverick member of the Chicago Democratic City Council and uh i said boy that's got to be a tough life because they they screwed him over you know i mean he was a lawyer and whenever his clients would come to his office the police would tow his cars or they'd put tickets on them <laughs> and uh, so they had to find special place all kinds of harassment because he was a pain in the butt for the mayor of chicago so uh i said boy marty how do you how do you handle all this stuff and he says oh you know it's just it's just politics um but hey andy you know i started working out I, I started running but i quit it because you can't knock anybody down <laughs> <laughs> so you know politics in chicago can be a contact sport and actually uh biden picked him to do something on some committee in washington so he's he's still in the in the fold even though he annoyed the chicago machine uh but uh, uh it, the Olympics, you know, they—it's yeah. all about money.
0: It's all about money. That money's coming to Los Angeles in 2028. Just to just to close the loop on that, it, it is 2028 when Los Angeles gets it, and so uh, some of that will probably correct itself. But right now, I mean, there just isn't. I, I think that your column, which actually came out a few days ago, is going to turn out to be prescient. I think a lot of these advertisers are going to start demanding a, to claw back uh, their. Uh, either yeah. either claw back their investments or get Super Bowl advertising because NBC has the Super Bowl, which is going to be right in the middle of the, yeah. the Olympics That's, this time. Um, yeah. So that That's might right. end up saving some of uh, NBC's bacon this year uh, on on and there, this. And there's
3: some there's some uh, advertisers that are uh, staying out of the Super Bowl this time. I think Subway and Oh Coke. wow coke and others i think are staying out now they don't have the problem of human rights with the super bowl um but uh it's and the time difference i mean i think that's a killer uh, you know i I mean who besides sean white who who does anybody care about in the olympics if you've got a kid in your family it's it's big news but Uh, And NBC, to their credit, said they're going to carry every minute of the Olympics on Peacock in one form or another uh, after, I guess, they screwed things up in the Summer Olympics, which I also happened to miss.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm talking about the Olympics and and NBC's terrible um, decision to broadcast this. I know a lot of people are boycotting it. I'm not one of them. I just never watched the Olympics anyway, so I'm just continuing with my policy <laughs> of not paying any attention to the Olympics. And so, considered a passive boycott. I'm just not going out of yeah. my way to to interrupt my, my, hev- my heavily scheduled uh, avoidance of Olympic matters, large <laughs> and small. And, you know, well, and, will you be watching the Super Bowl without I, Pittsburgh? I will be watching the Super Bowl. I've actually been watching more football this year. I took almost the entire year off except for that Super Bowl last year. And the only reason I watched the Super Bowl last year is because Brady was in it. I thought, wow, that's really fascinating because I didn't expect him to ever get back there. Um, and that was a good Super Bowl. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, yeah but yeah. yeah, yeah, Pittsburgh didn't make it, unfortunately. But um, Los Angeles Rams versus Cincinnati Bengals, I'm okay with that. I wouldn't have picked those two
3: teams. Um
0: to well, make actually,
3: it... and I pointed out on Twitter, those are two Ohio teams. You it know, is? The, history, <laughs> the, the history of that, the Rams started in Cleveland. That's right. And they have, they have the first of several cities that the Rams abandoned, Cleveland, St. Louis. Um, they left Cleveland in 1946, which made room for Paul Brown to come in with a team named for him. They played in the All-America Conference for four years, won the championship every year with against another team called the Buffalo Bills, 1950. Ed, I'm sorry, you, you said the word Pittsburgh. Oh, I can say it. no, oh, 1950, no. 1950, the first year in the NFL. How long did the Jets have to wait? Six, seven years for the AFC, the, to, to or the AFL to win uh, the championship? Yep. Uh, 1950, on the first, the first game, of uh, first season as an NFL team, the Cleveland Browns won the championship against, Los Angeles Rams <laughs> on a last-second field goal. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's uh, it's sweet, and they did. They then went on to win four championships. But then, after '64, they haven't won any. And then, what Super Bowl started in? What '67? '67. Yeah, they they haven't yeah. been to the Super Bowl. They're only now one that... of
0: two original NFL teams that haven't been to the Super Bowl, and we all know who the second one is, right?
3: No. The Detroit Lions. Oh right, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. bad. That's bad company. That's very bad now, company. Cincinnati was in. Of course, they lost to yeah. Joe Montana, but uh, uh, so and I like Joe Burrow. I have to say it. Uh, oh, I forgot the end of the story. Paul Brown got fired by Art Modell, the bad guy, in nineteen sixty-two. I think it was. So he went to the to Pittsburgh or to uh, Cincinnati and founded the Bengals with the same colors has the browns in your face uh, so I'm I'm I kind of like the idea of and Joe Burrow is a, a to all accounts a really nice guy and he's good so I think I'll be rooting for them ah uh, see this is what happens when you mention Cleveland on uh, uh, yeah, with Andrew. Of, everybody
0: everybody <laughs> gets, uh, gets <laughs> gets treated to some ancient history. Well, we got a couple of minutes. I, I know I'm, I'm going to tell people to go read your, your VIP uh, uh, column at redstate.com on typical Biden. If Putin invades Ukraine, he vows sanctions that don't work. Go read that. But before we go there, I'm, I'm actually going to talk a couple of minutes about a different story. Have you been following what happened with Chris Wallace and his uh, move to CNN? Because I think yeah. this, this is a separate <laughs> story. Chris Wallace dumps Fox News to do CNN Plus, which is a subscription service that relies on the idea that people are going to pay to get more cnn
3: um on the basis of jeff soccer running it it. they get it drummed into their heads in in so many airports i i i guess but and they pay for that did you know that cnn pays the airports to play them yep Yeah. yeah yeah i'd heard that before too so So Chris
0: Wallace dumps Fox News, and he had a prime perch at Fox News. Now, I I know that that he was unhappy with some of the direction that, you know, the editorial guys were going in, the the primetime guys were going in. Um, Ends up at CNN with Jeff Zucker and now reportedly is irate that Warner Media has booted Jeff Zucker because Jeff Zucker was the reason he came over there. Um,
3: (laughs) It sucks to do that. Yeah, I mean... In he what universe a producer. was that a... he doesn't have a show yet. It's uh, uh yeah kind of high and dry, but you know he's a star so uh, whoever's going to was it Discovery they're going to work out something for him.
0: I would think. I mean, they do,
3: but it sure won't be Sunday morning primetime.
0: No, I mean Denabash has that pretty well locked up on um on CNN and I think Tapper does some of that, but not all of it. Um but uh yeah, you know, i put it, had a good suggestion, which is to restructure their primetime around hard news and put Chris Wallace in on primetime, which I think would actually be a smart move, but...
3: Yeah, do I, counter-program, I outer count.
0: Counter-program, right? I mean, that's... See, I mean, the... Uh, you and I, I mean, just for another minute here, you and I have seen this. I don't understand why nobody at CNN or, or Warner Media has seen this. They have a perfect opportunity to counter program against the ideological content in prime time by simply going hard news, bring in hard news guys who are known for being hard news, turn them into the new Bernard Shaw's and, and you know, kind no. of sort of Wolf Blitzers. I mean, they still have Wolf. Uh, he does yeah. earlier in the day, but why not i mean why haven't they i mean is it just all zucker that's that's uh, been in the way of doing that
3: you know i i don't have any great insights there but the 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 idea was that in the trump era opinion trumped (laughs) everything uh and uh so they got good they got good ratings during the trump era by basically counter-programming trump uh but he's gone basically for them so yep. you're right that would be a good move i don't know who uh who uh discovery is going to prop up in there um uh, but i imagine there will be some some significant changes and uh, they'll um they'll have to come up with a with a with a new philosophy to uh that's just too much money to let go away dribble yep. away
0: yep all right so we're at the end of the at the end of our uh, podcast episode but we can't let you go without the traditional
3: jokes of the week Andrew <laughs> Well, I got some there they're what I call replays they're older ones uh, the Jimmy Fallon replays it says, say Super Bowl champs the Giants who just beat the Patriots uh, will meet President Obama at the White House. Meanwhile the Patriots will meet Newt Gingrich at Waffle House. <laughs> <laughs> uh um and uh, conan who's got a thing about boston he says a uh, heartbreaking loss for the new england patriots to the new york giants remember that was uh eli manning and oh, yeah. like, the last the, the helmet last catch yeah. yeah um heartbreaking loss um boston people haven't been this angry and depressed since every other day of their lives <laughs> <laughs> uh and um finally this one is it's this is jay i mean i always liked jay leno yep you remember when he was uh, uh i i did a couple of programs with him so full disclosure but uh he uh they were gonna cut his staff and so he took a cut. i think he was getting 30 million a year and he took he gave half of it to envy back to nbc to to keep his whole staff on until the end of his run so anyway he said um, tonight's our last show after 22 years so much has happened in that time but you know the saddest part is oj never really found the real killers <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all right well, well, well on that note wait a minute one other oh, oh, one, go, oh, one david letterman he says the Sochi uh, Olympic Hotel uh, for the Russian Winter Olympics, I think, is called the Two Seasons. <laughs> Instead of a little chocolate on your pillow, Russian maids leave a potato. <laughs> <laughs> not to mention, not to mention a microphone. Uh, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. That too.
0: I was gonna say a bug, but would it come out? sounding a little weird with the with the yeah, potato thing. Right. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Andrew Malcolm, of course, he is the prince of Twitter, at A.H. Malcolm on Twitter. He's also the regent of Red State, redstate.com. <laughs> I'm sticking with that, man. That's great. Yeah, regent it of Red State. Really like right.
3: It sounds like
0: it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's showbiz. It's showbiz. It's all showbiz. Andrew Malcolm, of course, thanks for being here.